This episode is brought to you by Audible. So when I make videos on Vsauce 2, I have to read a lot, but sometimes my eyeballs get tired. But you know what's still awake? My earballs. So I have to listen to audiobooks. And now you can too by going to audible.com slash thecreateunknown. And when you sign up for a free 30-day trial, you get a free audiobook. It's free. It's like it's sitting on the side of the road with a big sign that says free scrawled in Sharpie on an old napkin. And instead of a dirty old mattress, it's a wonderful book like The Disappearing Spoon by Sam Keane. That's a book that opens up the history and science of chemistry, and it's conversational, so you learn all kinds of stuff, like how the periodic table has this section called the Poisoner's Corridor, where the elements are all just incredibly deadly. Poisoner's Corridor. So check out The Disappearing Spoon with a free 30-day trial by going to audible.com slash thecreateunknown, and it helps support this show, and it helps support your mind. It's a free book. You cancel any time and you keep the book forever. It's audibletrial.com slash thecreateunknown. Vsauce. Kevin here. Matt. Please tell me something. Okay, so uh, I was thinking about Michael Stevens' Mindfield series, and one of the one of the first episodes is about him surviving isolation. What it's like to be isolated in a little room for seventy two hours, forty eight hours, whatever it was. This is really tough to do. But I saw just recently that a, a guy named Curtis Bott decided to see how long he could live in a ten by ten room that was filled with plants. Now, this is a cube. There's no oxygen flowing in. He's just depending on the oxygen produced by the plants. Okay. <laughs> How do you think this worked out for him? I, I would assume poorly. It doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound good to me at all as I'm imagining this. So he's just, just breathing in plant oxygen yeah. and nothing else. And, yep. and the, goal, the goal here... It is not to die. It's, well, I yeah, think that's yeah. everybody's goal and no matter what they're uh, doing. But he wanted to stay in this cube for how long? Uh, as long as he could. And that, that was part of the experiment is uh, fill up with these plants. I guess he got 200 in there. The plants are taking the sunlight and, and converting uh, the carbon dioxide into oxygen. And hopefully it's the right balance for him. So how did it go? Better than I, I expected, I guess. Uh, he, he quit after about 15 hours because the carbon dioxide levels were too high. Uh, and he said that, that it went poorly because the plants didn't get enough sunlight to really crank out the oxygen. Yeah, 15 hours is, is less than I thought. I thought you were going to be like, yeah, you made it like two days. Uh, he said that he could probably survive for three days. Okay. Uh, but he, he was more ambitious because he actually said, my goal is to do more than just not die. So I guess, you know, he's a lofty lofty gold guy, but he said he wanted to end the project. And this is the best quote without having turned blue, developed brain damage, gotten heat stroke, or just generally caused lasting harm to my body. <laughs> so he must've felt nervous at some point and thought like, this is a good first trial. We're going to leave it at that today. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Michael is somebody who's always interested in trying new things and I've known him for eight years now. We've, gotta we've be, yeah. worked together. We actually, in this in this interview, get to almost the first email that he ever sent to me back in 2010. And obviously, 
you know, I've worked with Michael. He created Vsauce. If you don't, if you aren't familiar with Vsauce and you just came into this podcast wanting to hear about the business of being a YouTuber, then I could tell you that Vsauce is the biggest educational YouTube network around. Uh, yeah, Michael worldwide. himself has over 13 million subscribers. And the channels have all evolved a lot over the years. And that's kind of something that Michael gets pretty analytical about yeah. in our conversation. Yeah, it was really excellent to hear him detail that whole whole thing from beginning to now. But the amazing thing about what Michael has done is that uh, he's really pushing the boundaries constantly, doing things that nobody else has done. And he, he does a magnificent job with all of it, makes this channel that there really is no, no equal to uh, on a platform that there's no equal to. And then starts to build out with you on Vsauce 2, with Jake on Vsauce 3, with the Dong channel, uh, with a live show, Brain Candy, with Adam Savage. He took it on the road in person. Then he uh, dealt with Mindfield, which is about 30-minute episodes. Uh, maybe eight in a season or so where he takes uh, takes a subject like I mentioned and and goes deep into it, does it himself. It's every element of the science on a level that nobody else really can do. And so he's constantly uh, pioneering in all sorts of media. Uh, and the crazy thing is that he gets it. He gets it right along the way. Uh, he takes on these topics, video topics where he goes in to one or two in detail. Uh, these are not things that the average guy can hit record and speak capably on, but he tackles it and does it in a flawless way. And that's why that's why he has uh, such a tremendous number of subscribers who just cannot wait to see what he's going to do next. Yeah. And not only that, we get into the the world of Vsauce memes a little bit with him, too. Something that we spoke about on an earlier podcast episode with Dolan Dark, and we get Michael's take on what it's like to be a meme, which is a very new thing in and of itself. You know, talk about pioneering things. I mean, <laughs> right. There are the pioneering things that he leads and then the pioneering things he's a subject of. And, and what isn't involved with yeah. other than just other people are doing this about him. So you're about to hear that. You're about to enter the mind of Vsauce creator Michael Stevens because you are about to enter so i want to start off by getting into the early days of vsauce from like our perspective because i mean obviously you've spoken in uh, an infinite number of interviews about well vsauce the name was created with a random name generator and uh you first started working at Barely Political, editing videos, and then created Vsauce from there as a video game comedy channel. But um, you know, from, from where I come from, one day I got an email out of the blue from someone named Michael Stevens uh, asking if I wanted to upload my uninformed video game reviews video to his new channel called Vsauce that I don't remember how many subscribers Vsauce had at that time. Do you know? Like 30,000 or something? Yeah, I think it had under 100,000. But, it, you know, back then, 30,000 was a lot of subscribers. And we'd been able to get them by partnering with Barely Political and doing, like, 
literally the Mario Farts video, stuff like that had brought in a bunch of viewers from Barely Political. I, I think I did a collaboration with Mark Douglas where I dressed up like Wonder Woman. So we'd gotten some good subscribers there. And we also had a little bit of cash to buy videos from people. I think that was what I emailed you about. And it, it could have been a YouTube message. I was thinking about this the other night, like private messaging people on YouTube. Can you still do that? It's embarrassing that I don't know. They brought back a, uh, uh, they like relaunched kind of a chat on YouTube. So you can. Oh, really? Yeah. I don't know if it's in, still in beta or, um, or if everybody's open to it. In fact, I think it might just work on mobile, but yeah, that is a thing that they are bringing back. But back then that was a, it was a really big thing for people to connect for creators to connect before like Twitter. I guess everybody uses Twitter now. Yeah. You could just DM someone. I mean, have you looked at your emails to try to find like, look at this. I just found it. It's uh August 16th, 2010. Oh, is this the original message? You know what? It's not the original because it starts off with me saying, Kevin, I'd like to move forward with something like Vsauce posting one of your uninformed reviews with an intro from one of us to introduce people to you and send some love over to youtube.com slash Kevin Lieber. Ask our viewers to suggest games for Jerry to review as a call to action. Uh, <laughs> let's talk soon. And then you're like, I hate you. Stop spamming me. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. No, you replied uh, the next day. Michael, that sounds great. Blah, blah, blah. And the rest is history. It's cool that we have these archives of our lives. I mean, I can I can with with just three pushes of a button, like look eight years back and see exactly how things happened. But but clearly we had talked before that email. So maybe it was an instant message or a private message, whatever it's called on YouTube first. And then, right. and then it turned I mean, into an email. Not to get too in the weeds, but I may have emailed you from my, you know, Michael at nextnewnetworks.com email address. Because that's not the introduction email. That's me being like, okay, cool. So let's go ahead and, and try this. But I don't know how I found your channel in the first place. Um, back in 2010, like the summer of 2010, Vsauce began and it was launched as a video game review and comedy channel. Not because I'm funny or good at video games, but because the company I worked at, Next New Networks, wanted that. They wanted something that could appeal to advertisers looking to advertise to the demo that watches gaming content. So they wanted to call the channel Video Game Nation. And I was like, oh, geez, that is so lame. It sounds like a bunch of adults came up with something like, hey, kids, are we cool? Hey there, fellow video kids. Video games, right? <laughs> this, is, this is Video Game Nation. And uh, luckily, I convinced them to accept a meaningless name. And that was really lucky. Because it meant that it could change over time and it didn't have to always be called Video Game Nation. But look at the Facebook page. The Vsauce One Facebook page is called Vsauce Gaming. Still. Yeah. And um, okay. So to circle back a second, I think that you found Uninformed Video Game Reviews through Binky McFart Nuggets. Oh, right. So I was friends with Binky McFart Nuggets, who was one of the funniest people that I've ever known. And I don't know what happened to him. Binky, if you're still out there, uh, please. I've tried to contact him for years now and he doesn't reply, but he was doing uh, overdubbing old stock footage with really ridiculous voices uh, like That's old commercials. Right. And I think that you found one of those videos and then um, 
my videos were connected somehow to him. Yeah, I don't know if I was looking at his channel and you were one of his like related channels or if I was just recommended your videos, but you were doing video game comedy. But it was pretty surreal stuff. You know, it wasn't mainstream kind of like a I mean, look, back then you could make a joke about like if video games were real and you could like walk into a big ham sandwich and your life would increase. And like those jokes were fresh back then. But you were doing jokes that were like Mario has a pet, you know, bug named Sushi. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, this is so weird. There wasn't any other gaming comedy like that. So I was like, look, I think I think we gave you like 300 bucks to just repost one of your existing videos on Vsauce. It was less than that. I think it was 100. And that $100, I was so ridiculously excited about because I had made countless videos, comics, Mm. essays, whatever, for years upon years for exactly $0. So to have someone say, hey, I will give you some money for a thing that you made was like, Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, after about 10 years solid of producing content in different formats uh, that just, eh, you were hoping it would get you somewhere. Well, $100 compared to the zero is is pretty good. 100 times better. Back in in 2010, $100 was like a million dollars today, right? I'm probably doing that math right, I'm sure. But, you know... it, it, it you know, and, and my recollection is that the Vsauce audience, which at the time was pretty much a barely political audience, they liked pop culture parodies. They did not understand Julius Bloop. They they were like, "Why would you make yourself look weird? Why would you say things that are wrong? Comedy is just supposed to be something different." <laughs> and they didn't like Julius Bloop. Um, <laughs> oh, the, the and, truth comes out, doesn't it? No, well, that is the I truth. I don't think there's a mystery. No, there is no That's mystery. not a secret. Just, just click on the video. They're still there, and you could see the dislikes. People like Julius Bloop now, though. Like, it's crazy how often uh, commenters on YouTube reference Julius Bloop. Oh, for sure, because yeah. now there's sort of the 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 right audience, you know. But the audience that Vsauce had eight years ago was, um, <laughs> you know, they they didn't like Julius Bloop. All right. That's what it, that was the problem. <laughs> and so we had Vsauce one with a few shows. I mean, there were other people who sort of like Kevin were doing programming that was submitted to Vsauce. In fact, I was initially supposed to just be the channel manager. I wasn't really supposed to be in the videos. I was supposed to make sure that all the creators hit their deadlines, that there was a schedule in place like Julius Bloop every Wednesday um, you know, wacky gamer every Monday. It was literally like that. And there was one day where I had done an IMG episode, which I'm not in, right? Those are just my voice curating funny pictures on the internet, which also, by the way, is such a dated show. There are so many better ways to look for funny pictures on the internet. But back then people were like, I don't know. I guess I have to watch a YouTube video to see funny pictures. <laughs> and anyway, I made like a mistake. Like I said, oh, look at this monkey, but it was actually a cat. So I did like this apology video. It was kind of a funny apology video about like, whoops, it was a monkey or it was a cat. I got it wrong. And being in front of the camera, I think, really resonated with people. And Ben Rellis, who is now working at YouTube, but was my boss at the time, 
at Next New, he said, I think you should be in more episodes. So I said, all right, well, I guess I'll make one. And I made I made stuff about like hot sauce and, you know, dreams and what we know about dreams. And that is how Vsauce became this educational channel. Well, and that's what I found so fascinating that I don't think a lot of people recognize today is because everybody knows what Vsauce is today. And I think it's easy for people to see. I was having a conversation with somebody about this at TEDx, which I, I, I did recently, talking about how when when someone gets known for something, you kind of assume like, well, that's just their God given talent. And one day they woke up and said, now I'm going to share my God given talent. And it got really popular overnight, but they never really see the progression because you didn't know about the person when they were unknown. And that's kind of the point. Um, not that, you know, Vsauce was unknown, but it was a niche thing. It was, uh, like you said, kind of like a trickle down from the barely political um, audience. And it's not until you started doing those videos that initially were called Dot because you would just write like the name of something and then put a period at the end for some reason. Yeah, yeah. You'd write like water period sound period sound period yeah well so i was creating playlists so back then you could you could do an image map for your header uh that you that was clickable so one day i was creating like the headers for vsauce 1 and vsauce 2 with little jars of sauce and in each jar of sauce was a show and michael's new what was new at the time series of him exploring these incredible topics in depth needed a name. So since you were putting periods at the end of each word, it was just like, I, I guess this is a show called Dot. Yeah. Um, you can even use the Internet Archive to go back and look at the Vsauce YouTube channel and see the history of its header images. And yeah, back in the day, we had like buckets of sauce um, that were different colors and represented the different shows that were on the channel. Um, and that became really unsustainable because people want some continuity to what they get from a channel. And if you have multiple people doing very different shows, then they're wary of like clicking on a new upload from the channel. Uh, that was definitely true back then. So creating Vsauce 2 so that then we would at least have the continuity of hosts on each channel where I'm on Vsauce 1, Kevin's on Vsauce 2. Then you could kind of do whatever you wanted and people always got what they were expecting when they clicked on a new upload. So that's how that happened. So what's the balance on that? Because you've got to keep you have to keep doing fresh stuff, especially when you're figuring out exactly what's going on, which when you're going comedy, video games, all of this into informational based things, you're sorting that out. So then you break off on another channel. What's the balance between doing all that fresh new stuff? And giving somebody something familiar to latch on to. So, like you said, they get what they're expecting to get. Well, I guess it's sort of the ultimate question. You know, you want to change enough every time that people don't move on. But you don't want to be so different that they think you're something new and they stop clicking on your new uploads. So, you know, at the very least, like always having the same person behind the content or, you know, in front of the camera, literally being the host helps because then we're just following your creative journey. But, you know, you also need to kind of explain when you change things up. 
because it's all being distributed through this one channel. In the olden days, <laughs> you you would do different kinds of projects like a Broadway play, and then you would do some stand-up comedy, and then you would make an album. And they were all distributed so differently that the expectations were already very clear to the audience. Oh, it's it's an album with songs on it. I bet it's going to be musical. Oh, it's a stand-up thing. I bet I'm supposed to laugh. But <clears throat> if you're if you're putting everything on one channel, then it's like, well, what is this? You never know. Is it going to be comedy? Is it going to be music? Is it going to be educational? <laughs> and that's a it's a weird challenge that you have when you've got this big silo where all your content goes. And that was sort of new with YouTube and, and, and social media. I think that there's a huge challenge there, too, still to this day, when trying to just kind of talk to your audience. I, I know that that's a challenge for us on Vsauce, where every upload is expected to be this show, kind of this premium content show where this you're going to dive in depth into uh, some sort of topic in an entertaining way. And uh, but if you want to just tell people like, hey, I'm going on the road with Adam Savage to do Brain Candy Live, um, you know, here's where you can get tickets. There, there's not an easy way to just kind of slot that in on YouTube in a way that you can easily on like a Facebook or an Instagram or a Twitter because it's not the same. Yeah, exactly. Because I don't really do vlogs where I can promote something really quickly. I feel like the the continuity on Vsauce should be that there's always a lot that you learn from each episode. So just an episode that does nothing but, hey, just want to let you know that you can buy our merch on this new store, buy, is just not going to get the same traction, you know? So to promote anything, I've got to create a whole new Vsauce video. And uh, it's... It's just kind of a a unique difference, right? Like on YouTube, I've got to make something big. But on Twitter, I can just post a weird Unicode character and everyone goes, haha, love it, you know? And they don't go, I expected a novel from you every time you make something. Um, so on Twitter, I can do something really quick. On YouTube, I feel like it has to be a bit bigger. Now, if I did smaller stuff, for instance, what I've been doing on the Dong channel, those aren't necessarily even smaller. Many of them are longer than many classic Vsauce episodes. However, I don't think they are as complete, and they're all off script. I mean, it's just, I'm just talking, right? And so I was just nervous that, like, the YouTube algorithm would learn, like, oh, wait, the show is different. People are responding differently. Let's kind of, like, lay off promoting it in related and in subscription boxes. Plus... I wanted to build the Dong channel, and I think doing quick shows about, like, Michael's toys wouldn't have fit on Vsauce as well. And I don't want people to look at a new Vsauce upload and think, well, I don't know. Is this going to be a 20-minute long episode about relativity, or is it going to be like Michael playing with a ball that floats and sinks? So in a way, the the videos that you're doing on Dong sort of become your vlog in a way, right, where... You're able to just say, here's what I've been thinking about lately, or here's this new really neat toy, this uh, Galveston board or, or whatever it may be, these rulers that I just kind of wanted to share with you guys, and uh, I thought you might be interested in it. Okay, bye. Yeah, in a way, it is It is very much a vlog. Yeah, it's me going, all right, start rolling. Um, I, I, I know what topic I want to discuss. It's Morse code, and I've got a few things to say about it. I don't know what order I will say them in. And there might be a lot of ums and there might even be some repetition, but it's the Dong channel. So Dong has also become a really great experimental laboratory where I can be like, you know what? I'm going to just do three hours of saying prime numbers. I'm just going to do 
I'm going to do a new show, and I might never do this show again. But you know what? That that keeps dong spicy. <laughs> Which is important to have a spicy dong, I think. Yeah. Uh, everybody wants that. Yeah. How many? Did we just lose a sponsor? <laughs> I think so. No, maybe we just gained a sponsor in like a Slim Jims or something. I don't know. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The dong channel name is really funny, but I like just being committed to things and pretending like, wait, dong has another meaning? I thought it was just an acronym for do online now, guys. But of course, the content that we put there is no longer exclusively things you can do online now, guys. It's just, but you know, the word dong doesn't have to be an acronym. It can just morph into something new. It would be worse if we called the channel Awesome Website Countdown. (laughs) You know, then we would be stuck. And I couldn't do an episode about a mathematical proof there. Um, so then Dong becomes its own character. And, and so, yeah, that's been really fun to watch. Well, that would have happened with Video Game Nation, right? You would have been locked in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you would have had no, no flexibility at all, really. Instead, you went with something that could kind of roll and evolve as you did, as the audience did, as the platform did. Yeah. And by having this sort of double entendre name, uh, you know, it's a little bit like we're the outlaws. You know, when all the goody two shoes executives at the, you know, social media companies are talking about like things they're proud of, they have to say the word dong, right? (laughs) And it means that we're kind of like the class clowns in the back that gets good grades, but yet is a little bit subversive. So that's, that's what I like about having the name dong. It feels a little bit like, ooh, but they're a bit, there's a little bit of edge there, but is there? Maybe there isn't. Maybe they just literally don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that that and this this ties back, I think, to the comedic origins. But that uh, there's a level of weirdness overall with Vsauce that I think led into the memes. So we spoke with Dolan Dark about creating Vsauce memes. And, you know, he was talking about how and why he did that. And, and largely, I mean, there were a couple of reasons uh, one of which uh, he felt like the audience all knew you, were familiar with you, were familiar with Vsauce. Um, but then also all liked you so that they're, they, how did he describe it? So they knew that you weren't the butt of the joke, um, but it was kind of like an homage or like a tribute in a way to kind of play with all of the strange footage that you've captured over the years. Yeah, it only works because everybody knows who you are and there's no obvious thing. If you'd had some tragic screw up or weird scenario or something like that, the joke would be built in. And so the absence of the joke kind of makes it the joke. It was really kind of a meta thing that he was explaining. Because there's obviously no malicious intent behind it. Yeah, zero. So it comes across as funny because of everyone is kind of in on the joke together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the question is, is the joke on me or am I in on the joke? And I think writing that line so it's sort of unknown helps. As soon as I get too into, hey, this is funny. I love these memes about me. It becomes incredibly lame. They need to be out of my control. They need to be a project that everyone else gets to touch, but not me. And so in my videos, I will do things that are sort of meme food. But maybe I didn't mean it that way. There's always that sort of plausible deniability. Like in my video about 
which way down is. I show mass by pushing around balls, and I'm having to really slap this big ball. And that actually, I think, is a very nice intuitive demonstration of mass, the, the, what it takes to accelerate and decelerate something. But I'm also slapping a ball, and there's these great you know, spanking noises that, that it makes. And it's kind of like, as you're watching, you're going, does Michael know how silly this looks? <laughs> I mean, he must, but he's not ever winking and nodding towards it. So we get to do that as the viewer. We get to misinterpret it, but he's kind of allowing us to do that. He's making that possible. There's a confidence in that, too, that you'll go ahead with something like that, knowing that, uh, okay, if I slap these balls around, there's probably going to be an animation here that goes in a bit of a goofy direction. And being okay with that. Uh, Is that, have you always been okay with that? Or... Did you have to kind of develop a comfort with it? Boy, I don't know. I, I mean, I guess I've always been comfortable with it. But the, the key is learning that people will get the joke. And those who don't get the joke will just think that I'm weird. But I'd, I'd rather be like a, a cult filmmaker than too mainstream and too palatable. But I, I wonder if you didn't have that background as being, say, the bearded nun in barely political <laughs> videos. Um, if you would have the same confidence or reaction or um, have the same level of fun with it. I'm thinking of, there are a lot of people in the EDU space, right? That maybe they take themselves a little more seriously than, for instance, you do. And that doesn't lend itself well to memes. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think I think I see what you're saying. Like if they take themselves really seriously, then creating memes about them could be seen as mean. And I think the bearded nun was always a part of me. I wouldn't have done it if it wasn't a part of my personality. So I think what's important is that I am not just the bearded nun. And so it's also important for my content to be quite serious and adult because that maturity is then undone by the goofiness. If you only had one or the other, then you couldn't you couldn't be memed as easily. If I was just a doing like professorial lectures, then it would seem mean to change what I've said, right? And to make memes about me. But if I was only ever joking and being silly, then making a meme would be like, well, there's already a joke. You need to make another joke. So instead, it's kind of this weird gray area that is much easier to mold and make into something new if you're a memer. I'm just trying to connect the dots a little bit um, on science communicators, like famous science personalities in the past. And I'm thinking directly of Beekman, who I know that was a huge, huge influence on you growing up, uh, who was very over-the-top wacky. I mean, that show was a kid's show, uh, but it it leaned heavily into the absurd, the surreal, uh, the bright green coat. Um, as opposed to, I mean, Bill Nye was also lighthearted in a lot of his stuff and, and kind of silly, the, the, the strange voiceover. But he it wasn't yeah. cartoonish. He was fun, but he wasn't comedy. He wasn't comedic so much, he, but he was just, he had a great attitude and, you know, uh, lighthearted is a good way to put it, like you said. Yeah, Bill, Bill Nye was fantastic because it was just great. It was great for schools, first of all. Like, when you watch an episode of that show today, you realize, oh, wow, they're sort of nailing home the same point in very different ways, one after the other. 
So the lesson really sticks with you. And it was very funny. And it was also very clever. Beekman was a little more surreal. Like he lived with a guy in a rat costume and it was never explained why, <laughs> you know? No, it wasn't a rat. It was just a guy dressed up as a rat. That's the yeah. thing. Yeah. It wasn't like, oh, there's a rat here or, oh, that's a big rat. It was like, that's Lester. <laughs> and he's 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 a rat, but like not really. It was it was just never explained. <laughs> they never explained why there were penguins watching the show. You know what I mean? Like it just was very whimsical and it allowed you to kind of make up your own relationship to the show. Um <laughs> But it didn't stick to one topic, right? I mean, Beekman would 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 pull out an envelope containing a question submitted by a viewer. And so he might talk about the history of roller skates and then move on to how a battery works. And I think it was harder to become a thing that everyone watched in schools. When I was a kid and there was a television in the classroom when you came in, that often meant, awesome, the teacher has nothing to do today, so we're just going to watch Bill Nye the Science Yeah, we did the same thing. Whenever Mr. Pep was out sick and uh, we had a uh, a substitute teacher roll in that big honking cart with the the 9,000 pound CRT television on top, it was always always Bill Nye time. Yeah, three tiers. Bottom row, second row has the VCR that nobody can ever figure out, and then the 8,000 pound TV on the top. Yeah, the kids say I can't even imagine ever possibly have to deal with. They probably no. all just have iPads and they like <laughs> Some, somebody pushes one button and it just beams the show into all of their mind. <laughs> yeah. That must be how schools are today, yeah. <laughs> this episode of The Create Unknown is sponsored by Skillshare. Matt, so a big part of the Create Unknown and why we wanted to start this show was not only to get an opportunity for me to talk with YouTubers who I'm friends with and and whom I admire, but also to get into the business side of all of this, because it's one thing to have a great idea and to be able to share that with people, but it's a, it's a totally different skill set really to be able to turn that into a business, right? Yeah. And we've seen at this point from, from talking to uh, quite a few successful people that even though they all do it differently, and the nature of their work and their personalities requires that it's all going to be a little bit different each time. Some some patterns emerge, and one of those patterns is how important it is to communicate with other people around you in your field, the other uh, leading people, the ones who are ahead of you and who you want to be. That networking and doing that, uh, doing the relationship building is absolutely critical. One way to learn that is just by trial and error over the years, which is, I think is what a lot of us end up doing. But if you want kind of like the fast lane approach to that, Skillshare actually has a course that you can take on this called How to Communicate with Clients, Building Relationships That Last. And it's taught by a graphic designer named Will Bryant, who goes kind of step by step through his process and his experience with dealing with clients, uh, email, proposals, creating decks, and all of the different ways that you can really maximize your ability to be successful here. It's really important, too, to understand that sometimes uh, sometimes you're the service provider 
and sometimes you are the client. So even if you look at a course like this and think, well, you know, I'm not going to have this big stable of, of clients because I'm not really a freelancer. The understanding what it's like to work in that capacity with clients, well, that's what it's like to work with you. And so taking a course, uh, taking a course like this one. Uh, is just exceptionally valuable when it comes to building building out your network, your reputation, uh, being easy to deal with, uh, and like you said, fast-tracking. Uh, you can you can do it without some training and some help on this, but it's going to take you 15 years instead of uh, 15 weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So if you want to skip ahead of the line, then just go to Skillshare.com slash the create unknown because we have an offer where for the first two months you can get Skillshare for just 99 cents and they have over 20,000 classes. So, you, you know, you will find something that you want to learn about. You're going to find multiple things that you want to learn about. I mean, I go on there and I just kind of drool over the possibilities of the different the different things that I can learn, the different skills I could pick up. So if you go to Skillshare.com slash the create unknown, then you get those two months for just 99 cents. You help support us and this show and you help support your skills. And then you get to share them. And then you get to share those skills. Skillshare.com slash the create unknown. But now today, you know, you're working, you're coming up on season three of, of Minefield. So just, just to backtrack and sum up the, where we've been with Vsauce, we, we go from uh, Michael's on Barely Political, uh, launches Vsauce video game comedy. Over the years, different formats, formats crop up of here are some funny pictures, uh, a show called Loot, here are some wacky things that you could buy. And uh, eventually you made what's the hottest pepper in the world? Was that the the first kind of question video that you tackled? Yeah, I think it may have been. Um, I, I should look back, but it's either that one or the one about the deepest hole. And in fact, I think those might even be on Vsauce 2. They are. They're, yeah, they're um, both on Vsauce 2. And the holes one continuously gets a lot of views. What's the biggest hole? Yeah. Yeah. What's the biggest hole? And those sort of were spinoffs of like countdown shows, you know, because I could go through big holes, but I kind of felt like to stand out from a simple list blog, I should kind of talk more about holes and um, why they can only be so deep, why we haven't gone deeper, what what different holes purposes are. And that's how it kind of became educational. Right. Because it's not just here are cool things. It's okay. Here are cool things. And here are some questions that I had about them that I did some research and can now answer for you. And I think that was very different at the time. Yeah, the hottest pepper one wasn't just like a countdown of the 10 hottest peppers with one being, you know, the current world record holder. It was, well, why are peppers hot in the first place? What chemical in them causes the reaction that it does? As it turns out, it really only affects mammals. Uh, birds are not affected, and there's an evolutionary reason why. Um, but there are also chemicals that are quite similar to what make peppers spicy, which is capsaicin. There, there are also sort of toxin chemicals that we have made that are even more powerful. And I, I believe some of them are even used to treat spinal injuries in animals. I mean, they're extremely powerful acting on nerves and, and, and sensations. So I talk about those a bit in the episode too. And it doesn't actually turn into a countdown. Um, it kind of turns into more of a, Let's have a cool conversation about spiciness. 
Yeah, so so you did that for a while, and then they were like five minute ish videos about a question. Then they kind of became like ten minute ish videos about a different question, a weirder question. What is you know where is this video? That sort of thing. Um, is my red the same as your red? And then they became like twenty minute, twenty five minute videos. And it seems like you always were kind of like, and this is kind of like a a larger question I really wanted to ask you about creativity. So just bear with me for a second. But I always wonder if creative people, when they create a thing, they push it as far as they can take it. And then if they feel like that's kind of the best version of the thing that they envisioned, they kind of want to start pushing something else in a different direction. And I wonder if you have thoughts about that, because the progression of Vsauce from what I just laid out to Minefield, where now you're creating a huge show where you're traveling all over the world, you're going to Japan, you're, you know, you're going to South America. Um, It's just 10 times what you were doing previously on Vsauce. Uh, what your thoughts are on that just journey, I guess, as a creative person. Right. I, I mean, I can't speak for anyone but myself. And I think all creative people, all people are creative, first of all, and all people are different. And so there are people who create one kind of thing their entire life. And that's amazing. And there are others who make a new thing every day. That's totally different <laughs> from the last. And for me, I think there's always a hint of trying to stand out. I was a class clown in high school and I would make sarcastic remarks and do goofy things to get attention. And so now put that personality in an education role and I'm always looking for, all right, well, what is no one doing? (laughs) And at first there was this big open niche of educational content made exclusively for the internet. And there were some early channels out there like uh, Smarter Every Day, Minute Physics, They were out there making stuff. Uh, Veritasium was there too, right? All these kind of early channels. And there was nothing else like it to watch on YouTube. And we all kind of became friends by mutually promoting each other. Then, you know, more and more educational content starts happening. And back when I was doing question videos that were kind of silly questions like, you know, why do we kiss? Why do humans wear clothing? Uh, What does human taste like? Those were really fun. But then... Uh, All of a sudden, every other video on YouTube was some silly question, right? What if you did this? Uh, How many times can you do this? And to stand out, I had to change. But I wouldn't even call it a strategy. I would call it sort of just me changing myself. You know, I've grown up a lot in the last eight, nine, ten years. And I started to say, you know what, I really want to try something a little more challenging. If I'm not challenged by my what I'm currently working on, I shouldn't be working on it. That's how I feel. I don't think you have to feel that way. But each new thing I tackle, especially on Vsauce 1, is harder for me and harder and harder. <laughs> and so when I did the Bonaktarsky video, I was like, you know what? I'm going to see if I can really break down how this paradox works, what the problem in this paradox really is, not just as a statement on Wikipedia, but I really want to read all the papers on it. And it took me months. And I even got together with Hannah Fry, a mathematician out in the UK. And I just like literally we went to lunch and I like presented the video live to her to see if it made sense. Can you follow this? Like, what am I missing? What needs to be explained better? 
and she helped a lot. And that was sort of the beginning of me saying, all right, now I want to take on things that no one else is taking on because it's just too, too, it's just a big challenge. And so I'm extremely lucky that I can take time to make things. Not everyone is in that position. There's a real push. I think a lot of people feel to always be making things, even if it means that you kind of have to put a little less love into each thing. If you don't, you're going to get forgotten, right? If you don't, then the YouTube, YouTube algorithm is going to like chew you up and throw you out. But I don't really buy that. You know, Taylor Swift doesn't make a new music video every week or every day. She might only make a couple a year, but they still get a billion views each. So there's clearly something more to it than just make lots of stuff all the time, even if you don't really feel like it's what you want to be making. But, you know, every content creator is so different. If you're doing daily vlogs, then of course do them every day. That's the entire point of the format. But if you're trying to, like, tackle Bonoktarski in a new way that sort of allows people to come in not being that familiar with all of the concepts and leaves them up to speed, <laughs> it's going to take a while. So, you know, I just am so lucky that I can do that. And now the Dong channel gives me an outlet to make the quicker things that I, I want to just talk about this now, but I'm not quite ready to talk about conservation laws and calculus of variations yet, because that's something that is harder to do and still be, you know, widely accessible. So how does that play into the stuff that you're tackling on Minefield? And I'd love to get your insight into how Minefield 3 now is different than, than 1 and 2, like where you're taking the show. Well, Minefield is a show that I had been pitching for years. Uh, I pitched it to a lot of networks years ago under a terrible name. The name wasn't so bad back then, but I think now because of how, you know, all, format new formats are popping up on YouTube all the time, like the new thing everyone's doing. And prank videos became really big like a couple of years after I had been pitching Minefield under the title Prankology. <laughs> all right. <laughs> So I wanted to do a show where we did things that felt a bit like pranks, um, but we really looked into the science of designing them. We talked about what are the variables, what's independent, what's dependent, how can we draw conclusions, how can we statistically analyze the results of these things. And many experiments in psychology, especially social, social psychology, feel a bit like a prank because your human subjects need to be naive to what you're really studying. And when I was a psychology student, candid camera was often used to show the existence of various phenomena like change blindness. And they were very funny to watch. And the, the, the instructor would show the clip and then we'd all laugh and then the instructor would talk about the theory behind it. Can you explain uh, change blindness just for people who aren't familiar with it? Oh, of course. So change blindness is our, you know, more frequent than you would expect of inability to detect changes. Uh, Richard Wiseman has a fantastic video on YouTube about this, and I almost feel like I shouldn't spoil it. You should just look up change blindness Richard Wiseman and watch that video, okay? But here's here's an example that I will spoil. So in a Candid Camera episode, they'd have a person approach a, a stranger on the street and ask for directions. Halfway through the person's description of, like, the directions to take to get to where the person wants to go— Someone would walk in between or something would move in between, like a person carrying a big box or a big sheet of plywood or a car would drive through. And while while their view was blocked, the person would be swapped out. 
the person asking for directions would be a whole brand new person. And the person giving directions often does not even realize that the person has just grown a foot taller, that their hair has changed color, that they're wearing completely different clothing. We can only attend to so many details at a time. And when you're asked for directions, what matters is giving the person the directions, not memorizing photographically exactly how they look. And so we learn a lot about the limits of, of human attention by doing things like that experiment. And it's a, but it's, it turns out to be really funny to watch. So I'm like, let's do these. You know, let's, let's investigate a lot of classic psych 101 concepts and create new demonstrations of them that we can capture in HD with lots of cameras. So now in season three, we're looking at, well, for lack of a better word, like cutting edge stuff. So what is being done with dream recording? That's literally happening. There is one researcher on this planet right now who is using machine learning to identify what we're thinking when we are asleep. (laughs) And it's totally nascent right now. This is like brand new stuff. The pictures of the dreams that have been recorded are not even good. Uh, You know, they're like, it looks like it's out of focus and it's very vague, but it's the first images we have ever captured of a dream. And that's, that's not a psych 101 topic, but we're able to work a lot more with experts. We've built up a lot of goodwill in my opinion, um, people know that we discuss things scientifically, that we don't overhype what's happening. Was that a challenge for the show uh, at first? Did, were, were researchers distrustful of being involved in a, in a show because they thought it would be uh, not, not reported accurately? Yeah, sometimes um, you know, whenever, I, whenever I talk to um, you know, a, a researcher or a scientist, I always ask, you know, what other media have you done? And then I ask them, oh, cool, cool. So what did you not like about how they told your story? And I try to do it the way they want it because it's more important to me to be, first of all, honest about what they're doing. But secondly, you're only going to keep their trust and be able to cover more of what these universities and institutions are doing if they know that you're the best place to go, that you can communicate their work to the public the best, right? Or at least well. And so, um, yeah, in season three, there's an expert like on screen with me all the time. It's all about celebrating the work that they are doing and communicating it to the public. I'm not the scientist, especially now that when we're ta- tackling subjects that are only being done by a handful of researchers. So the, the person who's recording the dreams, you said it's just one person. Where do they get their funding? Like that, that sounds like such... Uh, like, I don't know, sci-fi research. It's amazing that someone is even um, able to, because it must be expensive. I mean, I don't know what's involved. What, what's involved in that? It's it's pretty much your standard thought identification stuff, <laughs> which is, it's weird to call such a thing standard. But, um, you know, we, you, we have this um, hypothesis that for everything I think, everything that I'm perceiving, there's some brain state that matches it. And so if I look at a bunch of pictures of faces, all right, my brain is going to do all kinds of different things. And we can get a sense of what the brain is doing by looking uh, with fMRI. And MRI has not a a fantastic uh, uh, temporal resolution. It's looking at blood flow. So if blood flow increases in one part of the brain, then at some time in the past, that part used up uh, some energy and now it needs more from the blood. Anyway, the point is that we can look at what the brain is has has done when it's perceived something and if you 
show someone enough faces, eventually you might see that there's always a certain kind of activity when they look at a person with a mustache. (laughs) So that particular activity may be their processing of mustaches, or at least it's related. It, It occurs at the same time that the mustache person is shown to them. Okay. And so you show people thousands of faces. Now, all of a sudden you kind of, you can generate a map of, all right, if their brain looks like this, they're probably looking at something like this. Now you're mind reading and it's still extremely crude because not all of our brains are the same. And when I look at a person with a mustache, it's not like I check off a box called mustache. I might be responding also to the, sh- the size of the mustache. It might remind me of other people that I know. It has a certain color, a certain texture, all these different things. So it's very complicated. And it requires a lot of computer science to figure this out. And what Dr. Kamitani at Kyoto University is doing now is saying, well, why don't we run this while the person is asleep? And we can use an EEG net to determine when we think they're dreaming. And we can look at what we think might be in that dream, wake them up and ask them and see if our prediction matches their report. And he's able to do that pretty well. Uh, what's amazing is that I, I went and saw this happen. And, you know, they're, they'll wake a person up and they'll say, uh, okay, so first of all, their, their computer will tell them this person is dreaming about like language or written words or something. And they'll wake the person up. The person's like, oh, I was writing an essay. Whoa. And I'm like, what the heck? Whoa. And he's like, ah, uh, it's not very good still. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> my usual ability to guess someone's dream is zero. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and and it's amazing how humble uh, so many scientists are. And I think that's incredibly important. In fact, science is all about questioning at all times what you're doing. But uh, the results are fascinating. Now, the next step, well, is one to improve that prediction ability. The second one is to actually record visual representations of what the person was dreaming. And that is a little bit harder, but that's where they're, that's where they're focusing right now. Thought identification is being used in all kinds of other um, contexts all around the world. Um, if, if you want to understand memory, for instance, you can look at the difference in brain activity when someone sees a picture versus when they just recall the picture in their memory, when they imagine seeing it again, right? And you can really learn a lot about different cognitive things by detecting people's thoughts, not relying on them telling you what they're thinking, just looking at what their brain is doing. Yeah, it's interesting you you mentioned how humble the scientist is. One thing that I've experienced just over the years, reaching out to different scientists, experts, researchers, asking them about, you know, hey, uh, I'm doing a video about, you know, Dunbar's number, or, uh, what do you think about my script, uh, that sort of thing is just exactly as you pointed out how difficult it is to get them to say anything with any degree of certainty. It's it's nearly impossible. Almost everything is like, well, yeah, this is like a good guideline or, you know, as a general heuristic, you know, you, you could go with something like that. But I wouldn't like, for instance, the um, um, I did a video about pets and humans and our relationship with pets. And I was talking about oxytocin, which if you just like generally read about oxytocin, it's it's considered the love molecule. And there's all this kind of really overstepping the boundaries of what this thing should be referred to as. And I found that out when I spoke with a scientist who 
studies oxytocin and was like, yeah, please do not say that. Like, please do not, you know, call it the love molecule. It is not that. Like, that is just a gross uh, oversimplification that is used in pop culture in, you know, online magazines or whatever to, to get clicks. But, you know, amongst actually people studying this stuff, like, that couldn't be like more kind of almost offensive. And I can see why when you're going into with a production crew to talk about making a show about some of this stuff, the hesitancy that, that you may receive from some of these researchers. Uh, yeah, exactly. I think uh, uh, one of the central challenges of science communication is not simplifying things to the point at which you pretend that the mystery is solved, right? Science doesn't prove anything. All it does is reduce uncertainty. And so oxytocin, the love molecule. Wow, that sounds like a thing I want to click on. I'd love to read that article of PopSci. But oxytocin does so many things. Dopamine is always treated like this reward neurotransmitter. But it, it's, it's a little more subtle than that. And it's also a lot more broad than that. And so um, to me, I think the key is focusing on how exciting those unknowns are. Because this isn't mathematics, you know, we're not like, hey, look at this, we're axiomatically assuming these things and now we're proving this. It's more like, well, you know, we think that uh, it's a mess, okay? (laughs) The chemical oxytocin, the chemical dopamine have been around for millions of years, probably longer, and many different animals have them. But they're used in different ways and we sort of like adapt but still have that chemical in our brains. And so the role that it plays will vary from individual. The sensitivity they have to it varies. It changes day to day. Like that all is more exciting than just saying it's the love molecule. Now, I did an episode where I probably called it that, to be honest. You know, I also have and I'm always trying to evolve and be better at at this this responsibility of communicating science, Uh, you know. It is true that like when people hug and embrace their oxytocin levels go up, but that's not the only role it plays. And so, yeah, when you're working with scientists and you're also trying to please a network that wants things to be extremely clear cut with periods at the end, you have to walk that balance and, and, and trust that the audience will be much more provoked by open ended mystery and the fact that we have the tools to solve parts of it or get closer to an answer. That's exciting. Having it be settled is a little bit like, I don't know, dull. (laughs) And so I don't, I I always make sure that I emphasize that myself. I don't want viewers to think, aha, now I I can act like a know-it-all because I've learned something. You should always leave a Vsauce video thinking, my gosh, the, 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 what lies beyond my knowledge is greater than I ever thought before. Is extrapolating uh, some of the meaning sometimes, like uh, oversimplifying or uh, pulling something out like on oxytocin with you know, calling it the, the love molecule, whatever it was. Uh, is that kind of thing a necessary step for some people to get them interested, uh, to get them on the path to caring more about something and does it matter down the line they get a few steps down this path and they realize that it's more than that it's more nuanced or there's more to it or that's not quite right then is that okay yeah i think it's definitely okay and so the way i would treat it is that i would set it up like a settled thing you know i would show headlines describing oxytocin it's the love molecule if you want to be in love just pump your brain full of this right (laughs) and then i'd say 
or not, right? Mm -hmm. And everyone goes, oh my gosh, now we're going deep, right? And I'd say calling it the love molecule is simultaneously saying too little and too much. A lot more is involved in love and oxytocin does a lot more than just love stuff. How do you even define love? So you can present it there and you can especially use it in an intro or in a title and people get in, they're really excited. And then you pull the swerve ball of like, whoa, but let's really dive in. And, and that's, everyone wants that. Often learning is treated like, well, who wants to do that? If there's not a test coming up, I don't need to learn anything. But that's kind of specific to like school learning. We all are always wanting to learn. It might not be about math or science or social studies. It might be about our favorite bands. It might be about a sports team. It might be about how to you know, fix an air conditioner because we want to do it ourselves. We always want to learn things. It's how we literally identify who we are. It's by what we know and what we can talk about and the things that we want to identify with. So attaching that to something that's more classical textbook knowledge, like science and math, uh, has always been one of one of my goals. How do you go about the process of defining what is important to know and what is interesting to know for an audience? Because I imagine that you write and write and write and then, you know, look at it and say, well, I'm going to get rid of this part or, you know, this tangent is just too long and I'll save that for another video. You know, what is that process like for you? I just go by the barometer of, am I interested in it? Like, did I think this was cool enough that I learned it? Well, then it'll be in the video. Now things will maybe get cut because they take too long. And I say, maybe there's a way to turn this into like a tweet or something else to kind of keep promoting the video. But I kind of just trust my instinct. If, if I was curious, if I was curious enough to read more about something, then the viewers of my videos probably are going to be curious about it too. And, and that way, my, my intrinsic passion for the topic and my own curiosity should come through. I won't talk about a thing I'm not interested in because I just think it's not going to be contagiously curious to everyone watching. So yeah, I basically will say, well, I thought this was kind of cool. So I'm just going to cover it anyway. Uh, no one's forced to watch my videos. So, you know, I can't get in trouble. They kind of have to though, if they uh, want to keep up to date with the memes, I think they need to, uh, be able to reference them and know what clips they're from. I, I thought this interview was was canceled. I thought I thought you were dead, Michael, because I watched a video today uh, from uh, what was it? Dog beef? Did he make that? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Where you know he spliced together all these fantastic little oh, snippets. It's a parody of Inside the Mind of Jake Paul. Yes, Shane Dawson series. Yeah, but it's Inside the Mind of Vsauce. Yes. Ah, yeah. So what's inside my mind? Uh, dark things. Very, very dark things. Yeah. Yeah. And you'll have to watch it. It ends poorly for you. So yeah. I, <laughs> I was I was shocked that you showed up. I was like, oh, I guess that was a parody. It's not actually something that happened today. <laughs> or was it? <laughs> <laughs> That's the big question. So we've been ending these episodes by uh, embracing and showing off the creativity of our guests. Yeah. You know, I could say without any hesitation that you're one of the most creative people I've ever met. Oh, well, thank you. But no, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm pretty bad. Pretty bad. <laughs> I think that, yeah. that that has been proven wrong 13 million times at pretty, least. Pretty bad. You know, everybody's watching just to make sure that he's still the worst. Yeah. <laughs> Every time I make a video, I'm like, my gosh, I've covered that before. <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> I can't, I have no new ideas. 
luckily, the universe never runs out of ideas or weird things. So that keeps me in business. We asked Jake to make up um, a video game. We asked Justine who invented the chicken McNugget. And she convinced both of us that she actually knew the answer, but she just made it up. Which was kind of scary. No kidding. Her answer yeah. was, was actually was fairly really close. close to the real thing. Pretty good. It was really close. Like she even got this... The, the name of the guy who invented the chicken nugget began with the same letter that she, of the fake name she came up with. It, yeah, was, weird. it was like Richard versus Robert, Robert or, something or something like that. Yeah. She probably did know and was acting like she didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, we, we forgot to, uh, to come up with that question, didn't we? Yeah, I could think of something real quick. Maybe this is like the big meta thing. It's how creative is Kevin? Can he come up with a question about how creative Michael is? But that, yeah, that's actually why I do this. My head's about to explode. Speaking of head, head exploding and mind blowing, you know how many things I see all the time that are like called mind blow or like mind blowing or that, that just use that phrase? When, when you came up with that, I had never heard anything called that before. Well, the first video you did was blow your mind, I remember. And then you were like, hey, Kevin, will you make continue this show, you know, and we'll call it just mind blow, mind blow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a show just full of like, maybe you may have never noticed that there's an arrow in the FedEx logo or the logo for Amazon points from A to Z. You know, it was literally just like, oh, wow, I had no idea. And th th those kind of things were really popular on the Internet uh, long before the, the term mind blowing became such a cliche. Uh, and then it did, you know, so that's why Vsauce is always having to evolve because we'll start doing something and then it'll become pretty old hat. Yeah. So so on that note, then um, here at the Create Unknown, we'd like to celebrate creativity and honor the creativity of our guests by asking them a question that has no discernible answer. But we just ask you to make it up on the spot. So in the OK, in the. Uh, in the spirit of mind blow, what was the first thing to blow a human mind? Ah, yes. The first thing to blow a human mind. I think the best place to start is to go back to the namesake of the mind blow. Uh, we think that it's related to explosions, but it was actually Donald Blow, who <laughs> was the first factoid sharer, right? And this was like, it was a long time ago. This was like 1997, Whoa. right? And, and, and Donald Blow, I don't know if you guys remember him, but he would always be like, there are no mammals that are green. And you're like, oh, wow, that's really interesting. And, and, he'd, and he'd, be, he'd be like, yeah, well, you just got blowed, <laughs> right? Because that was his last name. And so he would just walk around like the streets of, I think it was Oklahoma City. And he would just like come up to strangers and he'd be like, did you know that if every star in the Milky Way was the size of a pea and you poured them into an Olympic sports stadium, it would overflow? And people would be like, no, I didn't know that. And he'd be like, you just got blown. <laughs> so over time, any kind of cool unknown fact became, you know, you got blowed. And unfortunately, Donald uh, Blow, uh, this is almost uh, tragic. He, he died in a, a fantastic explosion. He was literally blowed to pieces <laughs> and his legacy got sort of forgotten. 
and people started using blow with the mind, right? Like, oh, you blew my mind. And they, they kind of forgot that it shouldn't be blue my mind. It should be blowed my mind. It's named after Donald Blow. Well, I think that that's a perfect way to end this. I would love to dedicate this episode to the memory of Donald Blow, uh, who we, we can all thank for the factoid. R.I.P. R.I.P. Rest in pieces. He really did get quite, quite blown up. <laughs> and thank you, uh, Mr. Michael Stevens of Vsauce fame for joining us here on the Create Unknown. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Michael. Special thanks to Michael Stevens from Vsauce, the Vsauce one of Vsauce land. Be sure to check out Minefield Season 3. You can watch it on the Vsauce channel. So go to YouTube, go to Vsauce, watch Minefield. The show is incredible. We've got more info down in the show notes. Thanks for listening to the Create Unknown. If you liked what you heard, tell a friend about the show. Uh, I mean, you could tell an enemy about the show. Just tell everyone that you can about the show. And leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Podchaser. Those reviews really help us out. Subscribe to The Create Unknown if you haven't already for free on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, YouTube, or your favorite podcast app. You can follow the show on Facebook and Instagram at The Create Unknown and on Twitter at Just Create Unknown. And our website is TheCreateUnknown.com. The Create Unknown is a Vsauce podcast in association with Triangle Content. We've been your hosts, Kevin Lieber and Matt Tabor. Check us out on YouTube at Vsauce2. Executive producer is Dave Kiney, and this episode was edited by Adam Ganong. Our theme is by Mega Drive, and you should really check out Mega Drive's album Seas of Infinity. It's that dark, mysterious, synthy vibe that really launches lightning bolts and laser beams inside your brain. There's a link in the show notes, so yeah, click it, listen to it, absorb it, you'll love it. Host and guest portraits by the amazing Tim Webster. That kind of sounds like a uh, like a magician when you say it. The amazing Tim Webster. His portfolio and website are in the show notes as well. Special thanks to Dorothy Kiney and Paula Lieber. We'll be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. So until then, you are about to exit. And as always, thanks for listening.